Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom podcast, uh, and my guest is Orlando today. Orlando, uh, what is your full name, Orlando? My full name is Luis Orlando Isasa Villegas. Uh, and welcome, welcome to the Crazy Wisdom, <laughs> Crazy Wisdom show. Thank um, you. And uh, so can you tell my listeners where you grew up? I grew up uh, in a little town up in the Andes in Colombia, uh, in Abejorral, in Antioquia. Um, I was there, I was born there, and we remained there for, oh, I mean, my first eight years. And uh, in 1953, we essentially left Abejorral, where I was born. Um, just trying to survive. We just really couldn't make it anymore. So we went to Medellin to uh, for a better future. Mm. Yeah. And it didn't turn out that well, but <laughs> but that's what happened. And this was in 1950? In 1953. 1953. 1953, yeah. And uh, for me, you know, I grew up in the 1980s, and it's just, for me, trying to imagine what it was like to go from kind of rural poverty to into a city. How big was Medellin at that time? Um, pro I, I think there were about 500,000 people. It was still the second biggest city in the country, but very small by today's standards. And uh, it was tough. It was difficult to... It was very difficult in Abejorral, but uh, it was also quite difficult in Medellin trying to survive. But that city did offer you an opportunity in a sense, though, because you, you wouldn't have been able to do what you did without moving to the city. Oh, no question about it. I mean, we needed to kind of recreate uh, ourselves um, and just to figure out how it was that we could make it. So when we got to Medellin and had real hard times just kind of settling, uh, including being homeless for some time, um, we, my mother and I, uh, decided to go to the uh, manager of a milk company, of a dairy company who was from Abejorral, so my mother knew of him so we went and pleaded with him to um, let us um, sell some of the milk in our little house. And so I 
would wake up at maybe uh, both of us actually about three o'clock in the morning and prepare the different you know kind of uh, packages of milk and I would go up the mountain and deliver them put them in the doors enter some of the stores and go down the hill and so on and so forth it was uh, it was a way of getting some daily food mm. yeah and can you tell talk more you told me earlier today but i'd love to get it on the record of essentially how you made it to the united states um you because you you got this scholarship right yes um i was uh, you know i was pretty antisocial. i was a, an angry young man um i guess that anger was basically having to do with uh, a sense of life not being fair, uh, lack of justice, uh, you know, we, I couldn't figure out how it was that we didn't have the daily sustenance while others could in the society. And um, so I was pretty antisocial. I was an angry young man, but I was very good at school. And so, and that was kind of a strategy. Uh, I had a food on the streets and the other food in the school. And um, so in 1964, uh, there was a program organized by Harvard, uh, a coalition of American universities called the Latin American Scholarship Program of American Universities. And that was the first year uh, they came to Colombia to recruit quote, promising youth to take them to the States and educate them and bring them back to Latin America to, um, to teach uh, at the universities. So I learned about it just by reading a little article in the newspaper. Um, it turned out that uh, according to the description, the uh, people who were nominated, who, who were being selected uh, were nominated uh, by different institutions, uh, you know, high schools and others. And so I decided, hell, I'm going to, here's the name of the head of this program, Dr. David Henry. I'm going to send him a note, send him a letter. I'm going to request, a, you know, an interview. Um, and he did. And I was uh, very, very fortunate to be one of the uh, highly select group of people who uh, composed this pioneer group of uh, scholars who uh, were spread all over the United States at different universities to study what they wanted to do. And um, so I was sent to Brandeis because I uh, expressed an interest in sociology and in those days Brandeis was kind of the premier sociology department in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I ended up in the U.S. which, uh, I mean, it was a full scholarship so it not only saved my life because I was at that time at a very high risk of um, death. Uh, in one way or another, um, including the possibility of joining the guerrilla group uh, to supposedly fight injustice. And uh, the full scholarship actually allowed me to um, send home the little stipend that I received every week um, to keep the family alive here. 
And you became the sole breadwinner for your family when you were six years old, right? Yes, I was the youngest. Uh, my father was, you know, a difficult man and not not very pleasant and a bit violent. And um, so my older brothers were in some ways messed up. Uh, one of them was very ill and the other one was kind of disturbed. And uh, as as the youngest at uh, six years of age, um, we were hungry. We didn't have any food to it. It was my father had lost his job as a result of the violence in Colombia, and uh, he had been uh, labeled a liberal, and that in those days was a crime. And uh, he lost everything, and. Uh, so one day, um, I, my mother and I sat together and she said, you know, maybe we can make uh, little meat pies, uh, empanadas. I said, how the hell are we going to do that? We don't have the potatoes, we don't have the meat, we don't have the corn, we don't have the money. So she said, my son, why don't you go up, to, up the street to Don Pepe, to the store, and ask him if he would, uh, you know, um, allow us allow us to pay him later so I did go up and you know Don Pepe I will always remember him he was uh, very pleasant and said for sure here take this to your mom so we started making uh, empanadas and um, we would get up around three o'clock in the morning to prepare the you know all this the corn and or grind the corn and so on and so forth and around five o'clock, I would walk up the hill to, to church, to the first mass, and uh, start selling the empanadas at the, uh, when people came out of mass. Mm. And we survived out of that for a few years until um, the uh, person who ended up kind of being the agent who began to sell them for us at his little store, uh, decided to leave town uh, because his son had been, his son who was the priest of the town, uh, had been transferred to La Ceja. And um, then we decided that uh, we really had no future in Avejorral and we needed to just essentially flee the town. And actually it was a pretty incredible scene because um, we, ended up renting a truck to bring into the city the little possessions that we had. And my father um, refused to get in the truck. Mm. And so I told the guy who was driving, I said, just let's go. And my father ran up the street to catch up with the truck and uh, we got him in and we got to Medellin. Mm. <laughs> And so that, that seems extremely stressful, like oh, the whole thing you mentioned from six years old all the way until, until you got the scholarship to the United States, and also creative because you had, you, by necessity, you had to create this thing that would give you some money just so you could build, get a little bit of a life going and get fed and everything. So, uh, yeah. th that was a permanent pressure. It was always having to do something. Um, it was always having to create. It was always having to search, having to go beyond what I expected. I mean, 
writing the letter to the to David Henry to allow me to have the interview um, and that has kind of became a pattern in my life I uh, while in the US since 1965 uh, in effect I have consistently created institutions and programs to serve the needs of the uh, of the more uh, disadvantaged people in society in uh, education and healthcare and housing and so on so it has always been kind of a drive to uh, to fund something to create something to do something that is not there yet uh, to help myself and my family but certainly to help others and that that creativity as well it's it, so there's the in intense energy that that intense pressure and stress were on you gave you in order to create and then it created a habit almost for you then later once you got the opportunities to then actually like create meaningful institutions absolutely and and i think you your term is quite appropriate it, it kind of became a habit mm -hmm. and going to the states it was like a mine i mean uh, there were so many opportunities it was much easier to create <laughs> you know um so it, it just in effect it became easy um, it, it became easier to 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 create something new than actually fall into something that was already there um, thinking always that I might do a better job uh, you know being as critical as I always was of social institutions and programs I always thought well you know I probably could do a better job so let me try and um, it's not like it has always been a victory, but ninety percent of the cases um, it has been a success, and so you know I'm pretty glad that the immense pressure in life uh, drove me uh, to to build and to fund and to found and to create. And what did that pressure ever like l lessen? Did, 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 or was the habit from childhood? It's, that's a good question. Um, there was an interview in the Globe many years ago, which I read recently when I was going through my papers, where I sounded quite down. I mean, I actually was saying that I was burned out. Mm -hmm. Um, that uh, it, it was too much, that I needed a rest, that I, that I couldn't handle it anymore. It turned out to not be true. <laughs> but it was a moment of depression. <laughs> it was a moment of anguish, uh, thinking that, you know, it was too much, that I, I just, uh, you know, I'm only human, I'm not superhuman, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I don't come out of the skies. And um, I was burned out. And uh, in fact, I took off. I left and left formal work and took a year off and began to uh, do, you know, work in leather and stained glass and go from place to place to sell my little stuff and so on and so forth. But I returned. I came, I came, I came back to do what I was doing before, and, uh, perhaps, perhaps with more energy. Uh, I think I actually uh, that was kind of a medicine for for my depression at the time.
And it's so interesting because that was a that's you didn't you didn't stop creating, but you just started creating something else. That's it. That's really curious that you say that, because I thought I was kind of I was kind of giving up, but I I I became quite creative in another way. You know, I taught myself to do stained glass, and I did leather crafts, and you can actually see some of that in this house. Um, some of my, my work is actually here. Um, and there are a couple of pieces, you know, in, in Holyoke where I used to do a lot of work at the Heritage Park Museum um, and so on and so forth. And even so, even that kind of activity in the, in more of the, in the art uh, segment of life, um, I became quite creative, <laughs> yeah, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to say that I'm a recognized artist, but you know, I, I do good work. Mm. <laughs> well, and that, in some ways, it, mean, it gets to the thing about being human, because I think every single human being is creative in one sense or the other. Yep. Um, and as we were talking about before, I found out in another podcast I did that the first time that anybody ever used the word creative um, is, was in the 17th century by a poet. Uh, and be before that, it was only used to talk about God creating something from nothing. Um, but yeah, that's a, a, that's a remarkable thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I find that so interesting. It makes me think of the of the of the words in Spanish. Mm. You know, creer, crear, and crear. Mm. Three different words with profound meanings. Creer is to believe. Mm. Crear is to create, and crear is to raise uh, someone. Uh, or something, yeah. you know, and the, the meaning of those three words, essentially with the same etymology, are profoundly meaningful in the act of creation, in the act of building, of, in the act of doing good, mm. you know. Particularly creating something external, not just creating a thought. Uh, right. Uh, creating something external requires a whole bunch of belief. Pre uh, <laughs> precisely. Yeah. So, you know, creer, crear, and crear. You know, it's almost like a sequence. You know, you believe and then you create and then you actually begin to yeah, race, yeah. you know? And so there's a bunch of different stuff we could go from here. One, I want to I want to hear about what it was like to enter the United States from Colombia, being from having so little and then to a place that had so much. And then at the particular time where there's the hippie movement going on, mm. like a whole other type of creativity mm -hmm. started. Mm. Uh, so I'd love to talk about that, but I'd also like to talk about the, some of the things that you actually created in terms of the institutions that you're talking about and everything like that. Which one would you rather talk about? Well, actually both. I mean, they're, they're both quite interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the first thing that I can think of is that having been so vociferously against the United States while I was in Colombia as a student leader against all the Yankee interventions and so on and so forth. I got to the States and I found the people to be very human and very kind. And it just essentially blew my mind. It's like, you know, I began to realize the profound mistakes that people make in stereotyping and prejudging, you know, and that was kind of a driving driving force for me to 
study society to do sociology, you know. And so I decided to be good. I be I'll be blunt about it. I decided to be a good person. I decided to re-engineer myself, to reinvent myself as a good human being. And um, I could almost think of the day. <laughs> it was a, it was that discreet process, you know. And um, so, not only to be good, but to do good, you know. Uh, it, it was a real driving force, and. Uh, this whole kind of driving thing in my life for social justice um, began, obviously began in Colombia because I felt like a victim of society, but it, it, it got really transformed there because there were so many opportunities to do something. So when I got to Brandeis, uh, one of the first things that I realized was that there were all these Puerto Rican people in town who everybody ignored and they were having a lot of trouble and I keep seeing them and nobody talks about them, nobody does anything for them. So I began to, I started a program, uh, a volunteer, student volunteer program to, to help. Uh, so we started doing tutoring and job search for them and uh, translating uh, the doctor's offices and hospitals and the whole thing and that uh, was kind of my my first thing there but then I became very involved in many other things in healthcare planning and education and um, public housing I was I, I guess one of the most I one of the most salient uh, experiences uh, in that respect was that one day I was asked if I would work for, for St. Elizabeth's Hospital in, in, in Boston to bring some healthcare services to an adjacent um, housing development, which was the most distressed housing development in Massachusetts. Uh, it's called the, uh, well, it's known as the Fidelis Way development, but it's technically the Commonwealth development. And I, I essentially said to them, I said, look, I'll be glad to do this, but I'll do it my way. And what I mean by my way is that I'll be happy to kind of to enable healthcare services, access to healthcare services. But the issue here is poverty. Uh, so, you know, I need to have the, the authority uh, to start some community organizing here to organize this community and, and get this thing going, um, better the conditions, uh, better the housing conditions, the employment conditions, the healthcare conditions. So I did. And th that became a model program. Uh, studied at uh, the Boston College School of, at Boston University School of Social Work where because my helpers were actually graduate students from from uh, from BU, and that became uh, a rather rather model of of uh, public housing. So eventually, uh, out of that, uh, in those days, uh, Judge Garrity uh, took over uh, the help the housing system, uh, public housing in Holyoke, in Holyoke. I'm sorry, in in Boston. 
and uh, appointed a receiver and, the re and so there was a conference at BU on housing and I was one of the speakers talking about the experience at Fidelis Way and it turned out that the receiver who had just been appointed by the judge was present and he heard me and the next day he called my office uh, asking me if I would uh, become his uh, special assistant for human services uh, for the whole housing system in Boston, which I did. Mm. Yeah, so that was one of the... Then later on I moved to, uh, from Boston to, uh, to Western Massachusetts where again I responded to an ad for uh, a job to study uh, uh, a clinic in a mental health center for Latinos. Uh, and that again had been a lot of my background in Boston. So I said I would take the job gladly uh, if they selected me, but with, a, with one condition. And the condition would be that I would do half-time clinical services, therapy, um, but half-time community organizing. Because again, you know, uh, yeah, there is mental health uh, issues and mental health problems that uh, most of that comes out of social pressure and social stress. And so I began to um, get involved in, in uh, community organizing in Holyoke uh, while doing family therapy. And um, in 1983, I believe, maybe 84, uh, the uh, Massachusetts uh, st uh, Department of Public Health public, uh, published uh, some data uh, on healthcare and uh, Holyoke Latino community, Puerto Rican community mostly had the worst indices of healthcare, uh, including you know, uh, infant mortality and uh, difficulties in pregnancy and morbidity in general and so on and so forth and, you know, early death. And so um, we began, I began to, you know, do some, creating some coalitions. The first one was called the Human Service Network, joining human service workers from various institutions and programs to work together on behalf of that community. Uh, so we developed uh, task forces on housing, on education, on healthcare, and so on and so forth, and began to uh, kind of push the system, uh, the bureaucracy, all the way up to the governor uh, for services. Uh, well, actually, all the way all the way down to Congress. Um, uh, one of the most uh, crucial things that we did was we asked um, former um, Congressman uh, Silvia Conti, who was our rep uh, in Congress, to, um, to give us some funding, to get us some funding to start a, a clinic, uh, a, a modern healthcare clinic and so that was the beginning of the Holyoke Health Center which is one of the best in the state at this point. Mm. That is so interesting and so there's a few things that we could talk about from there. The first is that you were actually a beneficiary of a public housing project here in Columbia. Absolutely. <laughs> that's really, that's interesting, yes. <laughs> <laughs> ironic. Yeah. yeah. But that, 
and then you go on later and it makes me think that it's like so I didn't grow up in, in poverty so I don't I it took me a while to figure out like what are the basic needs of a human being and like but if you're in poverty I imagine that it's very clear from the beginning that like housing food absolutely the fundamental needs yeah, yeah. And right so like poverty teaches you that probably at a much m more emotional level um, and for a lot of us who grew up with a with means it's like that's just abstract basically right. Whereas yeah. for somebody who goes through it yeah and so it makes me think about like what are the stresses of poverty specifically or what are the traumas almost of poverty yeah. and how are those different from just the normal traumas of of, of a life that's uh, well th i have a couple of things to say i mean one is that all that work that i did in the u.s to kind of help people was kind of a way to redeem myself to repay you know mm -hmm. um how lucky you got yeah, how lucky, how lucky I got. I mean, how good it is for me now. Um, the the most difficult things of those early years, uh, you know, I, I remember. I mean, the the feeling in my gut of being hungry, and not having food. It, it just it cannot be described. You know, and and of course, you know, uh, eating all kinds of things that people don't consider edible. You know, uh, I don't know, like cow lungs. You know, which in those days was about the only thing we could afford. Some days, you know, uh, that was real tough. But I must say that even in those early days of desperate situations and so on and so forth. I was kind of programmed. I was I was programmed by my mother to be this great little beautiful genius like kid. And it's like I there was no way I could disappoint her. It it, it was I mean it was a fascinating thing. I, 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 it's not like I believe it. I, I, it's not like I really I was, I was a believer of those words, but undoubtedly they had a significant impact on me. So being so low in the social strata, I never felt I really belonged there. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really <laughs> it was it is kind of ironic i i really never felt like i i was low i mean i knew i was low yeah. but i didn't believe i was <laughs> yeah. you know it, it's so interesting because that makes me think about something that this guy named gary vinerchuk who talks about a lot about um it's just he he believe in order to succeed at certain things you just have to essentially believe in yourself yeah irrational oh, oh no question about it it was it's like it has to be unconditional trust of yourself and that i have always had well n not really i mean there were moments at brandeis not knowing the language and not being so depressed there in those in that first year that I really began to feel like I was a, re as I, you know, I, as I have said, like I was, I was a fraud. I felt like, oh my God, I'm, I'm just an idiot. I'm really stupid. 
you know, I, I'm an imposter. Yeah. You know, uh, there the, 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 were times there when I really deeply felt like I was a fraud. You know, I'd recover though. <laughs> And for, so for a lot of people, particularly people who develop stress, did you ever have any like one-on-one -on -one, uh, relationships with people in poverty that you were able to kind of provide that same type of like one-on-one -on -one encouragement and type of like Oh, counseling? oh, oh, yeah. that became kind of my way of working. Uh, I mean, I'll give you kind of an example, but doing mental health work, in the states, and particularly in Massachusetts, well, not particularly, but in the states, when people get sick and they are poor and they don't have resources and opportunities, the sickness becomes a permanent disability, and so they want to be declared incapacitated, incompetent, unable. So. As a practice, when I began working in that program in Holyoke, I used to get them in. I said, look, no, I mean, they come in and they say, you know, I have this diagnosis or whatever, and I wonder if you would help me with my disability and so on and so forth. And I said, I will, but let's spend six months together trying to figure out how competent you are and how able you are will help you make contact with some resources. And if in the end you cannot truly access and utilize well those resources because they are not good for you or you are not good for them, then we'll think about incapacity, we'll think about disability. But I'm not I'm not here as a therapist to help you become incompetent. And just write a, write yeah. a recommendation. And absolutely. Paper, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So my, you know, he was always trying to, you know, kind of to find the, 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 the deep urge in the human being to become a better human being and uh, to find the appropriate resources to do so. Uh, and that's why I was always you know, insisting that I needed to work on issues of poverty while doing housing, while doing health, while doing education, mm -hmm. because uh, those two things are, are intimately related. Mm -hmm. And it's the learned helplessness, and uh, the, and that's the thing I've always questioned about too, because like in some senses, trauma, if it's at below a certain level, or it can be thought of in a certain way or reframed in a certain way can drive us towards crazy amounts of success. But at the same time, it can also, like if that learned helplessness takes over, it's just... Absolutely. It's like, yeah. And I, I tell you, I, I mean, I was no expert on family therapy when I was thrown into the arena to do it. <laughs> it really, and I remember very vividly, I mean, I was just there a few days when my, uh, I mean, the, uh, the, the director of the program of the psychology department said, look, you got your first client coming in today. I said, what the hell are you talking about? You know, I, I don't think I'm ready for this. He said, yeah, I think you are. I said, well, okay, so just give me some guidance. I said, look, get in there and just remember, just go with the flow, 
and always, always remember to reframe everything in a positive way. I will never forget that. And I said, okay, tell me more, give me the file. Oh my God, this guy in the mid twenties has been raping his child for the last three years. What kind of positive reframe can I give this human being, mm. you know, <laughs> that I may want to kill, yeah. you know? <laughs> it was quite a, quite a thing. And so I got in the end, of course, I began to talk about his background and all of that. And I said, look, what you have done, it, it's really horrible. But I must congratulate you. I mean, you've really done a wonderful thing here. You have actually collected your whole family cheering for you. And they are now united on your behalf. And that's really a wonderful thing. You know, that was the only thing I could think of. <laughs> that was the only thing I could think of, you know. So, you know. Yeah, positive reframes, you know, going for the positive is a, it's a powerful, powerful driving force. Um, so now I'd like to understand more about, like, at a national level, your thoughts on Colombia, and maybe at a, even a historical level, too. Can you explain more about what La Violencia was? Oh, man. Well... I don't know. Colombia has had a real tragic history of violence and warfare uh, for a long, long time. It's hard to say that Colombia has been at peace at any time. But in the late 40s, uh, actually mid-40s to late 40s, you know, in Colombia, you know, there was a kind of a development of, of, of uh, I don't know what to call it, except for some version of n of Nazism, uh, where you know some kind of misnomer of patriotism and nationalism, dressed in religion, um, began to label liberals to be antisocial antichrist less than human and uh, that kind of labeling uh, that is now going on in the that US been, yeah. uh, became a violent struggle where people uh, were killed by conservatives who dressed in blue uh, because someone dressed in red and they were presumed to be liberals. And that kind of thinking pretty much reinforced by the church and some national leaders, inclu including uh, President Laureano Gomez at the time, uh, resulted in bands, uh, gangs uh, going through the countryside and the cities hunting for liberals and the ones who were more fortunate like my father um, did not get killed but he lost everything he lost his job 
and he lost his dignity. And uh, that has persisted in Colombia with different vestments. Um, it is as true today as it was then. I mean, the, the, uh, the recent violence uh, perpetrated against the people in the rural areas, uh, you know, the, the emphasis on killing them, the so-called guerrilla people, um, and urging soldiers to bring up the numbers and so they began to figure out that they needed to bring the data to the officials of higher numbers so they would kill indiscriminately um, and label them uh, guerrilla members when they were innocent bystanders. Uh, so that kind of uh, violence in Colombia, I mean, Colombia, it's a beautiful country, beautiful people, uh, but we are drenched in blood. Mm. We are drenched in blood. This is quite unfortunate. Yeah. But then there's that creativity aspect of it too, because th some of the best authors, art, all uh, so much of it comes from Colombia as well. What is the connection mm. between those things? Well, I mean, you, I mean, you think of people uh, like Garcia Marquez, you know, who understood the profound root of violence in Colombia and spoke so beautifully about it uh, and so mysteriously about it, you know, so he actually created a new genre of, of, of literature. Um, it's, it's fascinating, I mean, it's, it's just tragic that it has to take that kind of violence and injustice um, for people to to kind of think out of the box, so to speak, and create uh, a, a, a kind of a new way of looking at the world. It becomes almost a defense mechanism, kind of sadly put. Um, but it is true. I think a lot of the uh, stuff that goes on in, in the artistic uh, and literary world uh, in Colombia is very much related to the uh, kind of the social status of the of the country and particularly the violence that we have experienced for such a such a long time mm -hmm. and in a sense I mean it seems like what's been happening in Colombia I mean well, maybe since the 1850s or so is now happening on a global stage uh, in a lot of different countries including the United States and uh, Hungary and uh, the UK and all these different places where the 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 gulf between the two opposing ideologies is, is starting to get really intense uh, and yeah. so it makes me worried about our future. Oh, I, without question. I mean, knowing what I know about my own experience in Colombia and so on and so forth, what I now witness in the United States is extraordinarily frightening. Once you begin to label people as being less than human, um, once you kind of lose, uh, once you politicize, you know, divisiveness and hatred, um, once you begin to dehumanize people and, and elevate uh, the as, uh, hatred and violence as a virtue against people who are presumed to be lower in some way, um, 
uh, uh, we're on for real bad times. Uh, we are on for really bad times. I'm, I'm so afraid. I also hope, uh, it's not that I believe, but I hope that in fact what is going on in the U.S. will serve as a point of departure for creating a new, more just world. Uh, more just to each other, more just to the earth, more just to, you know, I mean, the animal kingdom, you know, just, uh, just basic respect for life. Uh, I hope it will emerge out of this critical moment in American history. I think we are, uh, we are on the edge of the precipice, you know, we are on the cliff. And I mean, these cycles, they always, it seems like they're cyclical. It's, it's something about global history, like makes us, people who went through this last time die and then they, they nobody has this experience that they went through Pat, and then we have to almost like learn it again. Yeah. Um, but in the end, it turns into something new and progress almost. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm at a loss. I, I don't really understand how it is that human beings have not been able to figure out how to create a world that is based on love and goodness. I mean, we know personally that love is good. <laughs> we know personally that good is good. And yet, at a social level, we don't seem to be able to create that. Uh, you know, instead, we have essentially growing inequality all over the planet pretty much and divisiveness and hatred becoming kind of the the the, the political cry of the time i don't understand it I, I just i mean i tell my friends i don't get it i don't get i you know knowing knowing that kindness is good why cannot be why can we not be socially kind, socially just with each other. Why do we continue to, to see inequity and inequality as something not only acceptable, but actually attractive? You know, almost like, it's almost like a enshrining of greed. I, I, I just don't get it. Yeah, I really don't. I, I just hope human beings will, will, you know, will get it. Some at the end of the millennium, in 1999, I was asked as one of many to make a statement uh, for a time capsule uh, in Northampton that will be open in the year 2100, and. That's what I essentially say in that statement, uh, that I hope by then people would have understood uh, that love is good and that love is good in the family, love is good in our own personal, it, it love to each other. I mean, it, it's, hard, it's hard to not understand how it is that, you know, Loving ourselves unconditionally is not a good thing. I mean, so uh, why why is it that we don't get it? And so I, 
my hope in that statement was that in the year 21,000, we would get it. Mm. Maybe not. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for... for 21,000. 2100. 2100. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So, and for the last question, um, if there's kind of one, people, uh, having people's attention right now, if there's one place you want to direct their attention in a way that would maybe help them figure out how to deal with stress or more, become more creative or help others do the same thing, what would it be? It, it, I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it, but be gentle and kind to yourself. I mean, learn unconditional love for yourself. I mean, get rid of shame, get rid of guilt. I mean, I, I think those two are uh, primary problematic uh, issues in personal lives. Get rid of it. Uh, be kind to yourself. Uh, learn to demonstrate unconditional love for yourself regardless of your inhumanity you know just be good to yourself thank you so much oh thank you thank you Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.